1: Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at Radio Team
2: at BeyondZeroEmissions dot org. Yes, and uh, this is Beyond Zero Emissions community show. It's Monday evening, five o'clock. Thanks very much to doing time just now. And you're listening to 3CR. You can find 3CR at 3cr.org.au and listen streaming. You can find our show and others under the podcast tab there. And, uh, yes, we've got a, a three different speakers for you tonight. Tonight's show is called The Day After Tomorrow. And will we experience the alarming scenarios dramatised for us by Hollywood? Professor David Carrolly of Melbourne University, our first speaker, doesn't think so. If you are not sure what one degree of warming has done to our climate system, what reaching 400 parts per million actually means, whether the calthrate gun has gone off, if cyclones will become more frequent or more intense in the future, and what on earth are the feedbacks that are amplifying climate change, then this is the program for you. We also bring you an interview with Professor Will Stefan from the Climate Council, courtesy of 3RN's Fran Kelly. And uh, the lastly, with all this clear scientific in- information in mind, we hear from Pakistan – Dr. Adil Nijam was on um, a number of weeks ago on the show. But uh, Dr. Adil Nijam used to be on Pakistani TV. Now he is a world expert on international affairs at Boston University. So he is simply beautiful to listen to. It is also beautiful to hear that although he is a pessimist, he just won't give up. We know that even in Australia, heat waves are the biggest climate-related killer, but imagine what it is like for the citizens of Karachi who cannot afford a fan, much less aircon, whose streets need trees, whose homeless people need somewhere to get water. Dr Adil Nijam has practical solutions, but the biggest solution is for us all of us, to stop our excessive emissions. As we fly over Pakistan for luxury holidays and our ships export coal and gas until the market dries up, Pakistani climate refugees begin to arrive in Turkey and then on to Europe. Their crops burnt out and their country at times too hot to live in. We have this enthralling interview with Dr Nijam, courtesy of Alex Smith from Radio Ecoshock in Vancouver. This really is one of his best. But first up, let's go to Professor David Carrolly from Melbourne University.
3: Well, we already know that the climate system has changed by only about eight-tenths of a degree, and yet we've already seen major impacts from that relatively small warming in many different parts of Australia and what that small warming has done is cause a greater frequency of hot extremes more days above 35 and 40 degrees Celsius as we've seen over the last few summers in southeastern Australia more days with extreme and catastrophic bushfire danger including major increases in the intensity and frequency of fires in southeastern Australia in Melbourne in Canberra and in Sydney over the last few years. We've also already seen major impacts associated with sea level rise so when we go to even further warming, two degrees is about two and a half times the warming we've seen already and we will expect increases, dramatic increases in the frequency of hot extremes, more impacts on increased frequency of bushfires, more impacts on the Great Barrier Reef, reductions in rainfall and increases in evaporation in our agricultural areas associated with more frequent droughts. So there are many much worse impacts in store. We've only seen the start of the adverse impacts of climate change. Changes in tropical cyclones, or hurricanes as they're more often called in in the United States, are difficult to link to changes in greenhouse gases. But we do know that increases in intensity of tropical cyclones or hurricanes are associated with warmer sea surface temperatures around the global ocean. In fact, in the North Atlantic, we've seen major increases in intensity and numbers of tropical cyclones or hurricanes in the North Atlantic over the last 10 years. In fact, in Australia, we've actually seen decreases in numbers of tropical cyclone over the last 20 or 30 years. But what we expect in the future is more intense tropical cyclones, even though the total number of cyclones is actually likely to decrease. So what we expect is that when we do get cyclones, they're likely to be more damaging and more intense, with stronger winds, more rainfall, and even bigger storm surges and flooding, but that the actual total number of tropical cyclones and hurricanes is likely to decrease over the next 100 years. Greenhouse gas concentrations, particularly carbon dioxide, which is the most important Greenhouse gas in the atmosphere, in terms of its human influence and its impact on the climate system, their concentrations now are more than 390 parts per million. Over the last 800,000 years, carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere were never above 300 parts per million. So, what we're seeing is we've had a 30% increase in dioxide concentrations over the last 200 years. That's been due to burning fossil fuels and land clearing and other human activity. And the concentrations have caused, or the increasing concentrations have caused most of the warming in global average temperature. And we're in a situation now where the Earth's climate has not seen these greenhouse gas concentrations for nearly a million years. And what that warming does, the system is not in equilibrium. The warming of the climate system is catching up to the higher greenhouse gas concentrations that are in the atmosphere already and we have locked in further warming. The system is still catching up to the higher greenhouse gas concentrations and we can expect about another two degrees of warming just due to the greenhouse gases we have already put into the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide also has a really long Lifetime for the climate system to adjust. So if we don't inject any more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, it will take more than a thousand years for the natural system to remove the carbon dioxide that we've put in by burning fossil fuels and land clearing. People and agriculture and natural systems are very sensitive to both cold extremes and hot extremes. We are expecting and have experienced less frequent cold extremes, but more frequent hot extremes. And the hot extremes cause heat stress and bushfires which affect people and have major impacts on human health. In the bushfires on Black Saturday, it was a catastrophe and there has been a lot of publicity about the 170 people that died in the bushfire, and that was a tragedy. There has been much less publicity about double the number of people that died due to heat stress and heat-related extremes at exactly the same time. There is no royal commission into the heat-stress-related deaths, even though twice as many people died from heat-related illnesses in exactly the same period as the fires. So there's a, we expect those sorts of heat-related impacts to dramatically increase, and we are seeing that in many areas around the world.
2: Next up, we have another professor. This is Professor Will Stefan. and he's an Australian scientist, a climate change expert and a researcher at the ANU. He's talking to Fran Kelly on ABC's Radio National Breakfast Show.
1: Last year was the hottest for the planet on record, and now new figures have revealed that 2015 shattered the temperature record by the widest margin ever. The US Space Agency, NASA... And the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the US cite a com- combination of climate change and this year's season's quite savage El Nino in the Pacific as the cause. The Climate Council here in Australia is also releasing a report today to give context to these numbers. Professor Will Steffen is a climate change expert and researcher at the ANU and a counsellor in the Climate Council. Will Steffen, good morning. Welcome to breakfast. Thanks, Fran. So the planet's globally globally average temperature for last year was the highest since we began records 135 years ago. In Australia, what did that mean? How were the temperatures?
0: Temperatures were very hot for us, particularly in the springtime. We had the hottest October on record. Uh, We had an extremely hot spring, uh, dry spring in the southwest and the southeast. And, of course, we're seeing the results of that now with a a very bad uh, bushfire season. So this plays out, of course, in different ways in different parts of the world. U.S. has had an extremely bad bushfire season as well, heat waves in the uh, Indian subcontinent and so on. For us, it's meant really hot spring, hot summer, uh, bad bushfires dry
1: conditions so heat waves high temperatures we can link to bushfires but we've heard in the past uh, a lot of people decry any link of those heat waves to um, climate change is there any evidence to suggest that last year's highest temperature on record is a result of climate change or is it el nino or is it only a combination of the two in which case where does that take us in the climate change debate
0: it's a combination of the two, but to, to pick them apart, you've got to take long-term records. El Ninos operate on the timescale of a year or two. Climate change operates on the time scale of centuries and so on. So I think the most telling uh, figure here is that if you look at how fast the climate is warming, it has increased its rate since 1970 quite dramatically. Uh, and that factors out El Nino and La Niñas. So uh, there's no doubt that climate change is a very significant factor, probably the most significant factor. I'll give you another really piece, piece of interesting research, and that comes back down here to Australia. Uh, In October uh, 2015, that was uh, the hottest October on record, Uh, and some very interesting research has shown that that was virtually impossible without climate change. In other words, you can look at the statistics of what's the probability of these sort of records happening without the underlying trend in climate, and they become astronomically small. So there is absolutely no doubt in in the minds of the scientific community that climate change is the dominant factor, driving repeated repeated high-temperature records.
1: Yes, it's important that this year broke the records, but is it 14 of the past 15 have been the highest on record? Is that true? They, they,
0: yes, they, they've, they've beaten the earlier records of the 20th century. So if we look at how often records fell uh, this, this year, we had a record in 20, 2005, we had a record in 2010, we had a record in 2014, we had a record in 2015. Now, if you look at only natural variability and the chances of that happening, you would see a a record-hot year about once every 100 years if you have a 100-year record. Well, we've seen in the last decade, we've seen uh, four of them tumble. That's highly, highly unusual without the underlying trend of climate change.
1: It's 22 to 9 on Breakfast. Our guest is Professor Will Steffen, climate change expert researcher at the ANU and a member of the Climate Council... What does this all mean, Will? Because 2015, I think, was also the first full year to break the 1 degree centigrade barrier above pre-industrial levels, a benchmark for warming, we know, and the politicians around the world met in Paris just in December to promise again to take action to keep the global rise in temperatures below 2 degrees. We've already hit the 1 degree barrier, is that what we're saying? So what does that mean for that target of the 2 degrees?
0: Look, that's an absolutely key point, Fran. Uh, And also coming out of the Paris uh, meeting was an ambition to try to come as close as possible to 1.5, because that's a real danger point for a lot of the Pacific Islands, for example. So if you look at the 1.5 ambition, we are two-thirds of the way there. If you look at two degrees, we're half the way there, and there's already a lot of momentum built in the climate system that we can't stop. So we're already committed to several tenths of a degree more, even if we could magically stop emissions tomorrow. The bottom line is that we've got to get cracking on getting emissions down fast and deeply, and the focus has to be on greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuels. That's the name of the game. And, can so this, I,
1: and just on yes. this notion of the two degrees, because there's another report out today that Australian uh, researchers have been involved in, which points, I guess, the obvious, but perhaps we don't think about much, which is that a two degrees increase is not uniform. In some places, it might be less than that. In other places, it's going to be way over that. Where does Australia sit in that? Do you, can you tell us that?
0: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, Australia is going to most, the bulk of our land mass is going to be at or slightly above that average. So so the rule of thumb is land areas warm more than ocean surfaces, and the northern hemisphere, particularly the northern high latitudes, warm more uh, than the global average. So the high latitudes of the north are really going to get clobbered. Large areas, land masses with inland areas like the bulk of Australia will be higher than average. Coastal areas will probably be slightly lower than average uh, because they're close to that that enormous pool of water. So for Australia that means hotter conditions over much of the continent.
1: And, And also just to put this in context, this finding that last year was the hottest year since we started taking records 130 odd years ago. Would we have noticed that in any particular degree? How much by?
0: Okay, Uh the, the 20th century average, uh, we were, uh near, near, we're nearly agree, a degree above that. So we're 0.9 of a degree above the 20th century average, if that's what you're what you're asking. I think what people are noticing is that the rate has ramped up quite sharply since 1970. So a lot of people are intuitively saying, we haven't seen conditions like this, uh, particularly older people. Uh, and, and that's, uh, that's a, a personal observation of what this trend is actually saying. So if you take century averages of temperature change, uh, and, and a degree a century in geological time is really fast. If you look at uh, the 20th century, we were averaging on, on, on average about 7 tenths of a degree per century. We're now averaging closer to 2 degrees per century. That is a really rapid rate of temperature rise. We'll so, go so so, so the rate is really shooting up.
1: Will Steffen, thank you very much for joining us.
0: My pleasure. Thank you, Fran.
1: Professor Will Steffen from the ANU, he's a climate change expert and counselor of the Climate Council.
2: You're listening to 3CR Radio. And more importantly, Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Now that we've had... A few of the facts on climate change and these uh, deleterious effects, let's put the, some of that knowledge into action and hear some of the practical solutions from Dr. Adil Najam. He says he is a pessimist who just won't give up. He is Dean of the Party School of Global Studies at Boston University and one of Pakistan's leading intellectuals. If we could just take his words to heart, the suffering and forced migrations because of climate change could possibly be diminished. This is one of Alex Smith's best interviews from Radio Ecoshock in Vancouver. And that's a big claim because Alex Smith does a lot of good interviews. So have a listen and see what you think.
4: The crushing heat in this year of 2016 is not the first to strike Pakistan and India. Just last year, thousands died and Pakistan suffered a kind of heat paralysis. What happened then and now our guest is the Dean of the Party's School of Global Studies at Boston University. He's a professor of international relations concerning Earth and the environment. And Dr. Adil Najam was a Vice-Chancellor at Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. Adil, a warm welcome to Radio EcoShock. Let's talk about last year's heat emergency. 1,000 people died in the heat of Karachi in 2015. Please describe that heat event for us.
5: Um, Thank you for having me, and thank you for this conversation. Uh, Last year was a particularly bad year in terms of the impact of the heat. Now, Pakistan or South Asia is not a part of the world that is unfamiliar to heat, even to intense heat. This is the place where the highest recorded ever temperatures are routinely recorded. But one of the things that happened last year was that the intensity was more the time period over which the heat wave persisted was more. This was true for South Asia in general, India and Pakistan in particular, and Karachi in Pakistan in particular. In Pakistan and Karachi's case, the perfect storm happened because this also came in the midst of the Muslim month of Ramadan, which is a month of fasting. And what that meant was that there were people who were fasting for religious reasons, who were trying to sort of push themselves harder. More than that, the infrastructure of support uh, that is already missing in a poor country, especially for the poorest people, became even weaker. So all of these things combined to create this sort of massive wave and this number of the very large number of people— Uh, who died because of it. And it it literally shook not just the large city of Karachi, but the country.
4: And just so we know, how many people live in Karachi?
5: Karachi is one of the uh, largest cities in the world. You have certainly upwards of 10 million people living in this city. Uh, And I say that without precision because Pakistan has not had a census for a very long time. And the number of people who are kind of undocumented is even larger. So My own guess is we are talking about closer to 15 rather than 10 billion people.
4: And is electricity for fans or air conditioning reliable in Karachi? Uh, No,
5: it is not. It is not reliable anywhere in Pakistan. Uh, But here is the thing. Anyone who can afford an air conditioner, which is very, very few people, and now I'm talking in single-digit percentages, can probably afford to run it because they'll also afford a generator of some sort. Anyone who can afford a fan, and that is not something that everyone would have, probably is still has some, some infrastructure to be able to survive and deal with this heat. The real issue is, and this is really the, the nub of climate change, that most people in a city like Karachi, but most people in this, in, in the world, do not have the paraphernalia of dealing with these things that you and I might take for granted, right? Uh, we, We would take it for granted that, yes, you are poor, but that means you'll probably have a fan. Well, that's just not true for most people, not only in Karachi, but actually in the world.
4: And you have said half the deaths were preventable. What should national and state governments do to prepare for more heat events?
5: Well, I think all of the deaths are preventable. Uh, first of all, uh, I am convinced that at least part of this, and we cannot say which part, is related to, uh, climate change. And we, if, even if this is not, we're going to see more and more of that. And that means there's blood on your hands and mine. Right? So first, let's just start with that, that this, this is not just nature happening on its own. Uh, this is you and I and those of us particularly who are more affluent. Uh, having outsourced our misery by our lack of action on climate change, but that's that may be a more a more deeper conversation on an immediate level I think that uh, and and many believe that these are preventable because this is not a country that is not used to heat b heat is something that you can deal with you can it is a question of hydration it's a question of not air conditioning as much as just getting water to people uh, making it easier for people to get a regular intake of water during the day you know things that we kind of take for granted and never talk about is shade right now you're talking about very poor people mostly working outside in intense heat at a time when because as i said because of ramzan the infrastructure of dealing with that heat is is low simply not having trees in a city, right? It's a very simple thing. But if you have ever walked anywhere in the sun, whether for pleasure or out of necessity, after a little while, if there is some place of shade where you can just sit and rest for a while, it makes a huge difference. And all of these things sound very, very small, but they are not, especially when they add up in a multi-million person metropolis, and that's why these, these are entirely preventable things. The tragedy is that we as a planet, and even Pakistan as a country, has the ability to deal with these things. And it is the negligence of our generation that these things keep happening. This time it was Karachi, but you also saw this in India. You see this with droughts in Africa and in Asia all the time. So there is a pattern to this. Here is my bottom line. Uh, people do not die because of heat. People die because of the inability to deal with that heat. And that means they die because of poverty, they die because of bad decisions, they die because of a lack of development.
4: That's so true. Well, it isn't just the heat The 2010 floods in Pakistan were devastating. It must take years for the country to recover from such weather extremes, and I assume some farmers and families never do.
5: Some don't, but here is the... Well, sad thing about the flood, the 2010 floods, and we are now in 2016, um, never ended. What do I mean by that? We are now in the sixth consecutive year of floods, and now it doesn't even make the news. So there were multiple hundreds of people who died earlier this year, in April, in this year's flood. So every year since 2010? Now the floods have kind of become this repetitive thing, uh, and at least part of that is the melting of the glaciers up in the Himalayas, again, uh, possibly with impact from climate change. And if you think about it, you know, I'm, I'm guessing your listeners are thinking, well, I didn't hear about them. Uh, that's because most people didn't hear about them. Even in Pakistani newspapers, it no longer makes news if 100 people die because of floods. And you kind of internalize this as if this is a new normal. Uh, Well, dying people should never be a normal. And it's not just the floods. We are also now in the fourth year of a drought in another part of Pakistan, in Thar, where children keep dying uh, literally um, every day. And that also doesn't make news. And so this to me is the reality of a world with climate change. It is not simply the reality that there is more uh, death and destruction and disaster. It is also the reality that you become immune to being moved by that death and destruction. It becomes a new normal and we keep moving on as if, okay, this is how it was supposed to be. So if you look around the world at these climate induced uh, disasters and you look at all of them together you suddenly see well there's something happening but we are also like that flog in boiling water getting used to this as if well this is how it is and that is a tragedy
4: this is radio eco shock i'm alex smith with my guest adil najam we're talking about pakistan in the new age of global heat Let's talk about Pakistan's energy sources. I'm just learning about that ice loss in the northern mountains of Pakistan, which you just mentioned. I presume that the many hydroelectric dams have enough water to run? Uh,
5: The the politics of energy in Pakistan is pretty intense, as it is in many, many developing countries. Pakistan, back in the 60s, was at the forefront of building large hydroelectric dams. They were the motors of Pakistan's economic growth at that time. There were some mistakes also made. But since then, this kind of this political logjam on building new hydroelectric power, largely because of differences between different parts of Pakistan and the feeling that these benefit one part and not another, uh, it's not an entirely unreasonable feeling, but that sort of kind of brought to a standstill the ability of the country to use hydroelectric to its potential. And also, I think there was a certain fascination with large dams as opposed to small and medium and even micro dams uh, that could have benefited. So at this point, Pakistan is sort of under has less energy and has a major energy crisis and unfortunately instead of looking at renewable sources a lot of the emphasis and passion is being spent towards trying to build coal and 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 that in my view is is not the best of solutions but it is the direction that the country seems to be heading towards
4: yes i was surprised to find out pakistan has undeveloped coal reserves Uh, Pakistan does have
5: undeveloped coal reserves, Um, it is not the best quality coal in terms of cost and environmental features, but people like myself have also been arguing that even if you leave aside the environmental aspect, and in many cases I can argue legitimately that countries like Pakistan, which use very little energy to begin with, which have very low carbon footprints of their own, their responsibility is different from large countries like the U.S. or Europe that, or China or India that have very large carbon footprints. But even if for a moment you leave aside the carbon question, coal to me is a dying technology. It is, it is pretty clear that the writing on the wall is that we are moving away from the age of coal. So if you think about it, uh, the largest coal company in the U.S., recently went bankrupt weeks after that the largest coal supplier in the world a Chinese company uh, announced that they're going to move to begin trying to be a supplier of renewable energy so this is not the best time to move into coal just from an economic and investment point of view and I have been sort of arguing you know it's like like buying a six track uh, right when the iPod is being introduced It is a technology whose time is gone, and we now have better technologies, partly because a lot of renewables are now cost competitive. Uh, Both solar and wind in various parts of the world, including in that region, have started becoming cost competitive. And therefore, I hope uh, not just Pakistan, but many developing countries will leapfrog If there is going to be an energy revolution in the world, I don't think it will come from mature economies in Europe and the U.S. as much as emerging economies leapfrogging, you know, just skipping the dirty technology and leapfrogging to a cleaner technology, kind of like they did with cell phones.
4: Given the suffering of Pakistan from impossible floods to heat and drought, talk to us about the politics of climate change in Pakistan.
5: Um, unfortunately, there isn't much. Pakistan, uh, was, um, mostly absent by its silence at Paris. Uh, but in my view, those who were speaking weren't making much sense either, but that's a separate issue. To the extent that there is, uh, climate change is an issue, unfortunately, Pakistan, like many other developing countries, has kind of wrapped itself in a shroud of, um, Victimhood. And it is not incorrect. It it is correct. The victimhood is we didn't create this problem. This is a problem that's been imposed on us by the excesses and the consumption of the developed world. Now, that happens to be true. But unfortunately, where I think it is wrong is that it leads to this thing because we didn't cause it, we don't need to do anything about it. The reality of the sciences that if you look at a world map of which countries and which areas are the most vulnerable, they are nearly all countries that have the least to do with creating the problem. So I can sulk in my victimhood, but that is not going to stop nature from throwing floods my way and heat my way and drought my way and glacial melt my way. And therefore, I think we are living now in what is the age of adaptation, and the front line of this, unfortunately, are the poorest countries, and within the poorest countries, the poorest communities. Now, that should again give a pause to you and me as, Mm -hmm. you know, the type of people who partly caused the mess, but... It should also give us a moment to say, this is not simply about what we do with carbon. This is about how we do development. Because climate adaptation is a development issue. How do you deal with floods? Uh, Not by controlling energy. How do you deal with heat? How do you deal with drought? How do you deal with any of these disasters? You deal through better development. And I think that's where the solution is, and we need to start coming back to the place that climate essentially is a development challenge.
4: You know, at the gates of Europe, when we look at the makeup of refugees, some are from Pakistan, and I'm wondering whether it's just too hard to grow things there, too hot to stand living there, too hard to live there sometimes.
5: It it could be, and I think there is a very legitimate concern about environmental refugees, and we've seen uh, that happening certainly in Africa and possibly in South Asia, including in Pakistan. But here is, I mean, I, I don't want to throw a totally gloomy picture. Uh, there is a lot of good, there, there is not good news. There is a lot of potential that is positive also. So, for example, I led a study with some colleagues in Pakistan where we looked at what climate change impact on agriculture would be. This is mostly an agricultural country. And uh, found that over 25 years, we found that for the two major crops, it could be up to 15% of yield. Now that's a major thing if your economy is dependent on it. But here is the interesting thing. What we found was that with good adaptation practices, development, the yield could actually go up sixty percent. Sixty percent. Six zero. Six zero. Wow. Right? And why is that? Because in Pakistan, as with many developing countries, there is a lot of room to grow into the better practices that they are not able to do because of lack of development. Right. So either we treat climate change as a post-disaster reaction. We will wait for bad things to happen, and then we will our humanity will arise, and we will send a little money so that uh, we feel good about how we are helping the world. Or, as I've been arguing, we treat it as a development challenge, and before the bad things happen, we invest in development, and particularly what I was talking about, leapfrogging. So agriculture is one of those things. If you look at agriculture in developing countries, including Pakistan, there is a lot of room for good practices that would not only lessen the impact of climate change, but could actually allow countries to produce more. So I I have always argued that the race here is between human knowledge and human wisdom. We have no dearth of knowledge on how to solve these problems the challenges that we have not demonstrated the wisdom or the will to deal with things that we are perfectly capable of dealing with
4: well i think to do that we'd have to escape something in our character that looks first at our own personal greed and and very last at people on the other side of the world
5: exactly exactly and 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 we have to realize that our and, and this is where we may not yet be a fully evolved species the assumption that what is good for me is only what happens in my immediate uh, environment, in, you know, neighborhood. Is just a patently false assumption, and that is why I get very concerned when anything first comes up because it assumes immediately that everything else must be second. So to assume that someone on the other side of the world has no bearing on what happens to me, or should have no bearing, is just not is not just morally wrong. It is intellectually it is intellectually bankrupt and that we should have realized in realizing that the planet is interconnected so just like pakistan's floods or heat has to do with um, may have as much to do with emissions you know half a world away remember that what happens half a world away will impact us tomorrow maybe it impacts us as you said on those gates of europe or tomorrow in the us uh, of people who leave their home and say, okay, if I can't live there, I'm coming where you are. But unless we start realizing that this is one planet, it's a fairly small planet, and we haven't done a good job with it, we are going to be in trouble.
4: What is the party School of Global Studies?
5: the party school of global studies is a school of international affairs uh boston university created the school two years ago by bringing together its various institutes and departments that work on international affairs we have a global focus on global issues Uh, and on international issues. So at one level, it is like any other school of international affairs. We study international relations, we study war, we study peace, we study economic development, terrorism. But we do have a particular focus on the global aspects and this realization that for the first time in human history, there are a whole bunch of processes that are not just international between countries, but global. In, in how they operate. Environment and climate is obviously one of them, but international finance is another. International migration is another. So international information is another. And so, so the school tries to is trying to build a school of international and global affairs that responds to the 21st century challenges that we are faced with.
4: So Pakistan is the sixth most populous country in the world. We should be watching it. If we want to be Pakistan watchers, what should we look for?
5: I think we should look for what is happening to ordinary people in Pakistan, like you are right now with the heat wave. Unfortunately, we look at too much. We should also look at that, but we look at it too much from the perspective of international security and terrorism. And this, again, is one of those areas where issues get connected. I do not think these are unrelated issues. If you have large populations of people who are uncomfortable, whose economic uh, opportunities are limited, who uh, are made even more limited by climate change, they are going to make decisions that will not be rational. So what we should be looking for is what happens to ordinary people. Uh, And this is not just for Pakistan. I think that is true everywhere. And I'll go back to what I said earlier. The tragedy is not that we have massive challenges. The tragedy is that we actually have the ability to solve them, and we keep abdicating that responsibility. Floods are one, but let me give you an easier example, food. There is no reason in the world, for at least a quarter century now, that anyone should die hungry anywhere. Right? Just just from a mathematical, sort of statistical point of view, there is enough food to feed everyone. And yet, we know that people die hungry all across the world, even in the most affluent societies. That is a, not a failure of agriculture. That's not a failure of food. Uh, that is a failure of our institutions globally. And you can apply that principle to a whole number of things, including on Pakistan, but, you know, it's Pakistan today, it's Afghanistan tomorrow, it's going to be Africa day after tomorrow, but we, unless we develop the capacity to think of ourselves as citizens of the globe, we are going to be in trouble. That doesn't mean we become less of a citizen of a Pakistan or a U.S. or Canada, but that does mean that we have to understand that we have the shared home and we have the ability to make it a better place.
4: You know, I'm concerned that we'll see continuous blows from climate disruption, and it may lead to more failed states in different parts of the world. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about how it's going to go for Pakistan?
5: <coughs> I suspect you are right, but for me, uh, pessimism is not a choice. Um, I, I don't know if I'm optimistic, but, but you have to keep trying. Right? If, if, you, if you become pessimistic and give up, then whatever little good that could happen will not happen. Uh, but I suspect that you are right, at least in part. I used to believe years ago, I spent too much of my life working on these issues years ago, I used to believe that maybe we will need some very great tragedy for the world to be shaken into action. That something really bad will happen, and then we will act. Uh, Unfortunately, I and you have now lived to too many of those great tragedies, whether they are events like 9-11, whether they are floods like 2010, whether they are earthquakes in Nepal, we just keep getting tragedy after tragedy, and the unfortunate reality is that it has not shaken us up. In a way, it has, it has routinized, it has routinized tragedies of a level that should not be routinized you know there's a there's a rhythm to this something really bad happens it gets plastered all over cnn twitter um, erupts in this great wave of empathy and two days later it's the next episode of the kardashians or whatever and we move on and and in some ways our ability to show our empathy in 140 characters has made it easier for us to think okay my job is done i wrote that tweet about how much i care about people dying in this place or that now i can move on and so so part of me is a pessimist in that way on the other hand the possibility of our ability to do something keeps driving me to say we cannot give up
4: Yes, a pessimist who won't give up. I I think that's me as well. We've just heard from one of Pakistan's leading intellectuals. Dr. Adil Najam is an internationally recognized expert on international affairs. He's published widely and once hosted himself a public affairs program on Pakistan television. These days, he's at Boston University as the dean of the Party School of Global Studies. You can find links to all of this in my show blog at ecoshock.info. Adil Najam. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to have you on Radio EcoShock. Thank you.
2: And let's see if I can get you motivated to get out there and um, contribute, because it's very clear—or I think it's very clear—that we can't leave these major decisions to politicians or big business. We need some sort of mass civil action to make them sit up and take notice. So, how about you start with uh, what sounds like a quite fun event? If you're in Melbourne, it's—it's uh, called—it's—it's it's being hosted by the Melbourne Playback Theatre Company. It's brought to us by the Darabin Climate Action Network and I take it it's an interactive uh, theatrical piece uh called Creating a Climate for Change. It's on the 11th of August and there is also a panel of speakers. You can't get through an event without a panel of speakers including our very own much loved Dr. Stephen Bygrave from um, BZE, Professor Rob Adams and Lucy Lucy Best. So it's on the 11th of August, that's a Thursday, 7pm at Northcote Town Hall. It's a not-for-profit event. And as my nephew says, if you search it up, and you know where to search it up, if you search it up uh, under Creating a Climate for Change or the Melbourne... uh, Uh, The Melbourne Playback Theatre Company, uh, you'll find their website and details on how to book and where to go and reinforcement of the time. So that's one thing for you to, to look up between now and next week. And another thing I commend you to, we've mentioned it before on the show, it's a local issue, it's a worthwhile issue, it's worth getting your teeth into. Have a look at the Great Forest National Park. Project which can be found under the great forest national au. I see they've got an endorsement from David Attenborough, can't get better than that. So, that is the show for tonight. Coming up next is Save Albert Park. We've brought you our BZE team has brought you tonight Professor David Carrolly from Melbourne University, another professor, all very eminent tonight. We've got Professor Will Stefan from ANU and lastly, Dr. Adil Nijam from Boston University. So that's it. I'd like to say stay warm, but in an ever warming climate, uh, uh, maybe that's not such a good thing. Uh, And uh, I'll take you out with Rose Turtle Ertler.